0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to to be together in worship. And uh, we are continuing a series today, uh, journeying with the Israelites through the wilderness in the book of Exodus. And we've been seeking to learn some of the lessons that come in seasons of wilderness wandering. We all have had those seasons, likely in our life, where things feel in between or things feel like they're moving backwards or are unresolved. What we've been discovering is the good news that these are not wasted years, but formative years. We've been exploring the way God has been about forming his people in the wilderness to be a new kind of community, a redemptive community that becomes a light to the nations. And each stop along the way, they've been learning different lessons. They've been learning about trust. They've been learning about courage. They've been learning how to live their life together in a way that is just and right. And today, as they're at the base of Mount Sinai, they are learning some rules for how to flourish as a people. We encounter this familiar text, the Ten Commandments, that are meant to form them into this people who will be a light of righteousness and justice to a watching world. This is a familiar passage to many of us, and there's always a danger when reading a familiar text to think we already kind of have a grasp of it, but my hope is that today we might have a fresh hearing of this familiar word. And I, I think we do need to return to this word regularly, because while we maybe are familiar with it, I actually think we sometimes have a limited understanding or awareness of the Ten Commandments. There was a study done back in two thousand seven by the Kelsey Research Agency and they discovered well Americans eighty percent of Americans knew every ingredient to the Big Mac at McDonald's, probably because of that annoying jingle they wrote back then. Uh, Only 60% of Americans knew that thou shalt not kill was in the Ten Commandments, so we are better at our burgers than our Bibles, and there is a gap sometimes in our awareness of these familiar texts. I would suggest that that gap in awareness might also affect those of us inside the walls of the church as well. I remember when I was studying up at Regent, I was in an ethics seminar, and our professor said, "Well, you're all training for ministry, so you should know the Ten Commandments. Who can just stand up and tell me all ten of them?" And we all started to squirm a little bit, and we were kind of fumbling around. Here we were, pastors preparing for ministry. We got to about seven or eight, and we're like, "I think there's something about an idol," and uh, just it was kind of exposing our lack of awareness. I was tempted to invite someone, uh, give twenty dollars to someone who could come and, and say all ten of them. Uh, But I didn't want to embarrass anybody, and I'm also too cheap to spend $20 on that. But maybe just the threat of that might have made you think, actually, I wonder if I do know all 10. So if that's where you're coming today, you're in good company. And uh, my hope is that we would just speak into those gaps of understanding. We do have, I think, a limited awareness of this familiar text. I also think that we have a limited trust in this text, culturally and sometimes even within the church. So we are living in a cultural moment right now where there is a resistance to this idea that there is an objective morality beyond my personal experience and preference. We live in an age of moral relativism. That's kind of the waters that we're swimming in culturally right now. Uh, the band Coldplay has a lyric that I think sums up some of the cultural wrestling that people are doing uh, right now. And in one of their songs, they have this catchy re- refrain, when it comes to deciding what's right or wrong, your guess is as good as mine. That kind of sums up our cultural moment. It's a pretty cool tune, terrible lyrics. Um, and, and so I just want to name that. that that's, that's some of the resistance we feel. This idea of what's right and what's wrong is really being debated. It's up for grabs. I want to engage that a little bit today. But I also want to suggest that that sometimes can seep into our own world within, within the church. I think uh, you might just notice your reaction to the text today, and I think sometimes when we hear this list of 10 things you shouldn't do, we kind of bristle at it. It feels a little bit legalistic. It feels like it's something that's too restrictive and confining, and I want to engage that reality today. Now, we do want to be careful about legalism, but sometimes in our rejection of legalism, we swing to the other extreme of lawlessness or this relativism, and I want to cast a vision for us today about the significance of of, of this ethical treatise that we receive. And I believe that this is actually leading not to confinement and legalism, but to flourishing and freedom. So I want to speak into that today. What I want to do is ask three questions of this text today. And the first question I want to ask is, why are these significant? Before we'll commit to something and engage in this ethical pathway, we need a vision for them, and I want to rediscover a vision for why these are worth our allegiance, worth our time, worth our engagement. So We're going to ask this why question. Second, I want to ask the what question, and we're going to do just a high-level view of these Ten Commandments, look at the content, read them, allow them to speak to us, Now, we could do a whole sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and we'll probably will at some point, so we won't hit everything, but I just want to give a big picture of the what. Like, what are they teaching us? And then lastly, I want to end with this practical question. How can we live into them? If we do buy into this vision, how can we begin to be formed in these new ways of living? I know we all come with our history of sin and struggle, and it can feel a little bit overwhelming when we hear this call to move in a new direction. I want to encounter some hopeful news as to how God wants to lead us and help us in living into this picture of of ethics. And so first, this question, why? Why are these significant? Why do we take time to come back regularly to these teachings in Exodus 20? And I want to begin by saying that the the vision here, I want us to capture of why these commandments are important, is that they, I believe, lead to freedom and flourishing. God does not want to just kind of ruin our life here and make life full of restrictions, but this is actually a pathway to freedom pathway to freedom. Now, I think we need to confront some of our limited cultural definitions of freedom. We have a tendency, I think, to define freedom as the absence of constraint. So I am free when nobody's telling me what I should or shouldn't do, and I can make my choices. That's how we define freedom. But as we dig deeper in this definition, I think we can trace in our own experience and just the way we live as humans that freedom doesn't mean the absence of all constraints. In fact, there can be liberation within certain restrictions, I think I've shared this metaphor before, but I think it helps us understand this dynamics of avoiding legalism, but not shifting over to lawlessness. And so we imagine the experience of a whale, right? So a whale that is in captivity in a small pool is clearly not free, right? It's too confined. It can't make choices. It can't enjoy the freedom of the open ocean and swim in freedom, and so, in that context, for that whale to experience freedom, it would be a release from captivity out into the open ocean. Right? At the same time, a whale is also not free if they live outside the restrictions of water. Right? So, if you've ever seen a picture of a beach whale, that's not very free, is it? Right? And so, within freedom, there are still... Uh, liberating restrictions. A whale is not free outside of the restrictions or the conditions of water, and it's the same thing for human beings, right? We want to avoid the legalism, and Jesus speaks against that, and some of us need a bigger ocean to swim in to move and experience freedom, and yet the <laughs> antidote to legalism is not lawlessness, not saying I can just do whatever I want, because when we go down that path, when there's no boundaries, when there's no restrictions, we can end up Uh, just not free and confined and overwhelmed and enslaved by unhealthy patterns in our life, right? A fish out of water is not free. A toddler at the top of the stairs without a baby gate is not free, (laughs) right? We need those restrictions to protect the well-being of a child. And as I hope we'll see in these texts, a life that is marked by uh, covetousness and murder And all these rules that we're learning around relationships is not a life of freedom, but a life that confines and disrupts and enslaves us. So there's an invitation to freedom. This is Timothy Keller. Freedom cannot be defined in strictly negative terms as the absence of confinement and constraint. In fact, in many cases, confinement and constraint is actually a means to liberation. God desires that we would live a life that works This is a really important turning point for me in middle school where I discovered that the church and my parents weren't actually out to ruin my life, but to to lead me into a path of freedom. And I saw in real time, uh, as friends were choosing different paths, some of the consequences of living a life without any restriction. This is the context in which the Ten Commandments are placed. So we notice at the very beginning of our text today God's heart for freedom, He has just liberated the Israelites out of Egypt, and the Ten Commandments begin with, again, a declaration of God's heart for freedom. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, here's an invitation to live a new way. So this is part of the why question. God desires that we would be truly free. The other why question, the vision I want to have around this, is that these commandments actually affect our public witness. This isn't just a personal conversation. It's just not about my personal well being. But we understand that the broader context here of uh, this formation of this people is that they would be a light to the nations. And so how they live doesn't just affect their own well being, it's going to affect how they can impact the world around them. In Exodus 19, they are called this holy people. Uh, that are are to be set apart to to show a world of injustice, a new way to live. And so how they live matters for their impact on the world. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 4, and this is a lead-up to the Ten Commandments, which also come in Deuteronomy 5. You must observe them diligently, for this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples, who, when they hear all these statues, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people." We see the impact of our own choices on those that we are surrounding and those that we influence. We can think about this in our family life, but we can also think about how we're going to impact our culture in redemptive ways. So that's the why question. This is about our freedom. It's also about our impact and about proclaiming God's wisdom to those around us. Well, I want to just get briefly into this now, this what question, what the Ten Commandments say. And we're going to go through these ten. Don't worry, this isn't going to be a two-hour sermon. Everyone's kind of panicking, (laughs) the ten-point sermon. Um, But what I want to do is just allow ourselves to hear this word, trusting that God desires what is right and good for us and for our world. And how I like to approach the Ten Commandments is just to know that God probably doesn't have ten things for you to hear today. I don't think that's how the Holy Spirit leads us, doesn't inundate us with a hundred problems that we have to fix such that we're paralyzed and overwhelmed. But I want us to be listening for maybe one or two things that rises to the surface for us in this text. Where does God want us to turn and live? Where does he want us to throw off some of those sins that so easily entangle us, it says in Hebrews, and to, to run in a renewed freedom in the path that God has marked out for us? Pay attention to what you're noticing, knowing that God maybe doesn't want us to hear every word, but there's maybe a word or a word or two for, for us to hear. So a couple of things, just observations about what the Ten Commandments teach us. And commentators know that there is a division in the middle of the commandments. And so the first four deal directly with our relationship with God and how we connect with God. And then the last six relate to our relationships with one another. Jesus says himself that... The commandment to love God and love our neighbors sums up the law, and we see that delineated in the Ten Commandments, and we're going to talk about how that order is actually significant. Our capacity to love others well begins first with being connected with the Lord, trusting the Lord, carving out time with the Lord. That's the source by which we can live ethically. And so these first four, I just want to briefly name and observe a couple of things. I'm going to put the first two together uh, about having no other gods and no idols. Next week, we're going to go more in depth about idolatry and uh, engage that theme and how that plays out in our life. But I want to just name today this, that I think sometimes we write off this, this language of idolatry as modern people. We don't practice idolatry in that primitive form. We don't have statues likely. Maybe you do, but most of us don't have statues to God and God's in our room that we bow down before and practice that kind of religious type of idolatry. The reality is though the scriptures recognize that idolatry is at work in subtle ways, and it's at work in our own hearts. An idol is something that we love more than God, something that we trust more than God, something that's captured our hearts and our allegiance more than God. This is a a helpful definition, uh, again, from Timothy Keller. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give Maybe that's more accessible for us to to reclaim this language. We make idols out of all kinds of things. What are those things you love? What are those things that you trust? What are those things that determine what you do with your life? The scriptures talk about how, how possessions and wealth can become an idol. We cross that line into idolatry when this becomes my source of security, my source of hope. It's what I live for. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning. We can make that out of status. We want to prove ourselves. Maybe we'll be enough if I just get to this pinnacle in my career. We can make an idol out of all kinds of things in our life. And God knows that these idols are going to let us down, and here's the invitation to freedom here. If we make an idol out of wealth, we're going to continually live with a sense of discontent. We'll never have enough if we make an idol out of status we're going to work ourselves to the ground we're going to always feel insecure trying to prove ourselves and god wants to free us from these things that cannot really fill that place of god in our life we're going to we're going to engage that more deeply next week, but I wonder if God wants to just speak into that in your heart today. Are there some things that you love and trust and obey, and they're just coming up short for you? Does God want to free you from these false gods that keep breaking our hearts? We move on to this command to not take the Lord's name in vain. Again, I think we limit this this command. We think about this as using Jesus as a cuss word or in our language. But this is something much broader here. We take the names Lord in vain whenever we bring God's name into disrepute. We bring the the names Lord in vain when we misrepresent God, when we attach Jesus to our particular agenda and project through our limited theology, when we bring God's name into disrepute through misrepresenting Him through our actions. I wonder if God wants us to to have a more expansive view and more respect for the name of the Lord, to have a more humble posture. I think sometimes we think we know what God's name represents. I wonder if there's a call to humility in this text, to know that we've put God in a box, in a Western box, in my own experience box, and sometimes the way we speak of God or the way we attach Jesus to our agenda is actually using the, the name of the Lord in vain. This is a call to humility and to reverence, to know that what we say and how we speak about God matters. I tremble at this as someone who speaks about God on a weekly basis. We come humbly and open to the, a bigger picture of God. Next we come to this command to obey the Sabbath. Now, here's something I, I, I notice in the Ten Commandments. Did you notice that some of them are very quick and some of them required a whole paragraph of explanation? Right? And I think it's important for us to notice that the, the ones that require a paragraph are some of the more slippery ones, <laughs> the ones that we might be able to justify. They might be even what one writer calls respectable sins. Right, So, when you commit adultery, it's kind of like yes or no, right? But if you're dealing with covetousness or greed, which also includes a paragraph, that's a little more subtle, right? Am I just being a good steward of my resource, or am I hoarding too much? We can justify some sins. And the same things at work with, with Sabbath. Like, what is a Sabbath? What does it really mean to, to rest? Um, I'm a pastor. Can I, can I work on the Sabbath? I'm doing spiritual things, it's one of the commandments that I think we neglect. Maybe one of the the most. We we kind of see it as an option, <laughs> but here there's a whole paragraph, and I think it's because we we need to just name uh, the ways in which we can easily lose sight of this, or justify it away, or let it slide. It's a slippery sin. <laughs> well, I, I think that. The, The thing about Sabbath is that there's also an invitation here to freedom as well. And I want to spend a bit of time on this one, too, because it gets some airtime in Exodus 20. It's interesting, when you read back in Deuteronomy 5, or read ahead, sorry, in Deuteronomy 5, God attaches Sabbath to freedom from, from Egypt and uh, so, this is what we read in Deuteronomy 5 in that version of the Ten Commandments. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, and then it explains why. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. There's a connection between Sabbath and freedom. In Egypt, there was no Sabbath, they were worked to the ground, it was 24 7. And God wants us to have a a rhythm of freedom, of rest, a day where we can trust that God is God, it's not up to me, that God will provide. Uh, Another thought from Timothy Keller, who I've drawn a lot today, God ties Sabbath to freedom from slavery, and anyone who cannot rest from work is a slave, to the need for success, to materialistic culture, to exploitative employers, to parental expectations, or to all of the above. These slave masters will abuse you if you are not disciplined in the practice of Sabbath rest. Sabbath is a declaration of freedom. Is there an invitation to some of us to rediscover this life-giving restriction, this liberating restriction that's meant to restore and to heal, to trust that we are not God and God can hold the world while we rest? Have we let this one slide? And does God want to draw us back into that? So we see these, these commandments that focus on our relationship with God. But then we see this shift to, this call to now, love our neighbors. There's this call to relational wholeness. These last six have a relational component. And I think we need to keep that in mind in these commandments, that these aren't just a personal thing, but they affect our relationship. Now, I want to just engage and challenge this cultural narrative that we named about moral relativism because I actually think that our cultural moment right now is full of contradictions and that actually nobody really is a pure moral relativist, right? Let's push that logic to the limits a little bit. Are we a moral relativist around child abuse? Is there room in our moral... uh, compass to allow for preemptive strikes on innocent people in the Ukraine, right? Do we just say there's, you know, your guess is as good as mine when we talk about human trafficking? <laughs> Here's the, the conundrum I see in our culture right now. There's a rejection of objective morality and yet a deep interest in justice. <laughs> and the question I want to ask of, of, of culture is, where do you get that grounds for justice? You don't find it in postmodern philosophy. You don't find it in Derrida and Foucault, and you don't find it in Coldplay, right? Your guess is as good as mine? Well, you seem really passionate about these issues of justice. Here's an interesting dynamic going on in our culture. The philosopher and theologian Alistair MacIntyre uses this term borrowed ethic, and he argues that our culture actually has borrowed a Judeo-Christian ethic while simultaneously rejecting that tradition. Because you do not find this grounds for caring for one another out of a postmodern philosophy. You don't find it in a purely materialistic worldview. If we are just atoms and molecules, does this matter? Do people have intrinsic worth? And so McIntyre says we're actually more attached to this tradition than we realize. What I want us to notice in this last movement of the commandments is they're all about relational wholeness and caring for one another. They're all about justice. I think uh, these actually speak into our cultural longings right now. So we go through these. Again, we just want to listen. Is there something God's speaking to our hearts today? As we are called to love others, we see this first commandment to start in those small spheres about honoring our parents. A few parents asked me if I could insert their kid into the reading of Scripture today, just to kind of reinforce the point. Just kidding. All right. I think it's it's significant that this begins in this smaller section. I think sometimes we're really passionate about the big deal, about being part of social change, but God says, why don't we start in our family unit? (laughs) It's maybe not as exciting, it's not as flashy, it's not something that we advertise, but that's where we learn these rhythms, and that's where we can have an impact on our family. And just invite us. We're all kids at, at one level, right? So what does it look like for me to honor and, and, and care for my parents? Jim Bruckner, in his commentary, argues that this is actually probably has adult uh, children in mind. And as you look at the expansion of the law in Deuteronomy, there's a lot of concern about caring for elderly parents who cannot provide for themselves. So it applies to all of us. What does it look like to care well and to honor those in our own family uh, family units? And then we have do not murder, and I just think that escalated quickly. <laughs> and maybe we need to tend to those smaller things before we get to this level, right? Do not murder. I don't think there's very many murderers in the room today, and it might be easy for us to just kind of, okay, that, that doesn't apply. We remember that Jesus expands on this and he talks about how in Matthew 5 and 6, this call to go beyond just the outward act of violence and look at the, the spirit of bitterness that's at root in our hearts and the anger that can take root and, and disrupt our relationships. I wonder if God wants to, to free us from a, some of the, that bitterness that takes root from some of the grudges that are starting to develop. There's a well-known saying that uh, to hold a grudge is to drink poison and hope the other person dies. I don't know if you've ever heard that one, but I wonder if God wants to free us from a little bit, some of that, that bitterness and anger that's starting to develop and, and bring about some reconciliation, some wholeness in those relationships where there is some discord. We see this call, do not commit adultery. And again, uh, this... Is something that Jesus expands on into our thought life and so on. Again, I want to just see how this is good news for us personally and a desire for us to thrive in relationships. I believe uh, trust and commitment leads to deeper intimacy. Uh, Augustine once said, and he lived a pretty wild life growing up, he said, "'Oh, that I had spent the flood of youth on the shores of marriage.'" And uh, he just talked about how when he got caught up in, in just rhythms of lust, how it was like this flood. It was outside the boundaries of experiencing that intimacy, and it was, it was um, an enslaving thing for him. I wonder if God wants to do some of that freeing work in our life today. There's this call to not steal. And I, I would suggest in, in this context, if this was written in our day and age, this might be one of the commandments that would need a paragraph. Might need a little bit of expanding. Because in a, in a globalized economy, I think sometimes we don't even know how the things that we are, are buying or participating in might impact people down the supply chain that are uh, being uh, disinvested, defrauded from... Uh, just disruptive practices. We're talking about some of this in our Lent groups on living, justice, living justly. But this is a quote from Terence Fretheim. The attachment to things, the extravagance in life uh, styles, and the mountain of waste generated all in the face of incredibly widespread hunger and want raise questions of theft to new levels. The prophets rail against Israel at precisely this point in a number of texts. At whose expense is this wealth gained? Does it not often constitute theft, for example, through inadequate wages or benefits, but at such a remove that we seldom know the victims' names and have to look them in the eyes? Definitions of theft need to be considered in view of the complexities of modern society, not least its corporate and government structures. And so we hear this call to to justice and how we respond to one another and in our possessions i'm going to skip ahead because i want to make sure we have time to come to the table today and i didn't think i'd get through all 10 (laughs) but i want to just ask this this question at the end is how can we begin to live into this word the good news i want to proclaim today is that as christians we read this ethic within the broader framework of the gospel, the good news of what God has done. Now, the New Testament does not disregard the Ten Commandments. In fact, they're referenced throughout the New Testament and, and expanded on by Jesus. But what we do discover in the New Testament is that we have access to a new power that enables us to to begin to live in new ways. John 15 is a text that I come back to often. It's a reminder that apart from God, we can do nothing, right? We are dependent on the Lord. And our capacity to bear this fruit of goodness towards one another begins as we abide with the Lord, just like a branch attached to the vine. And I just noticed the logic, even in the Ten Commandments themselves, that our capacity to live into this life of relational wholeness and justice, it it begins... By learning to love the Lord our God again, to attending to Him, discovering who His name is, by leaving room for worship, abiding in the Lord, it's through the love of God and through a renewed reverence of God that we have access to this source of transformation in our life. And so I think it's, it's fitting today that we uh, have a chance to come to the table We're reminded at this table that it's only as we are nourished by the love of God that we can then bear the good fruit of love in our world. We come to abide in Christ. One of the purposes, I think, of the Ten Commandments is actually to turn us back to the Lord. And there's conviction in these texts when we realize, and I stand with you, that we, we can't do this alone, and we've failed, and we've struggled in many of these areas. I want to proclaim the good news of grace, that there's a God who receives us today in grace and mercy and, and offers uh, the possibility of us moving in a new direction. So let's come to this table, uh, trusting that there's a God who is here to receive us in grace, but also in grace desires to empower us, nourish us, form us into new pathways, pathways where we can live in freedom, where we can live with righteousness and justice.